This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we'll be interviewing Dr. Krishna Yeshwant, Managing Partner at Google Ventures. Dr. Yeshwant has worn a number of hats, from physician to programmer to entrepreneur. He's been working at Google Ventures since its inception, and he previously helped start two successful companies. Dr. Yeshwant has a BS in computer science from Stanford, an MD from Harvard Medical School, and an MBA from Harvard Business School. And he completed his residency and practiced for several years at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. We always love having folks on the show who have seen the healthcare landscape from a number of different angles. Absolutely. And so one of the focuses of our conversation today will be on specialized healthcare models that provide different kinds of services to different subsets of the population. And the main argument here is that different people need very different things out of the healthcare system. And so more flexibility with regards to telehealth options or appointment duration, et cetera, can better help address individual patient needs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Imagine there are a lot of different places where this kind of innovation can happen, like how legacy providers structure their organizations. But since we're talking with Dr. Yeshwan today, I am particularly curious about what this would look like from the lens of new venture-backed companies. Yeah, so Dr. Yeshwan invests in a number of companies that innovate on the primary care model. But before we dive into that, let's start with some background on what one type of this innovation looks like, which is subscription-based models like concierge care. Let's go for that. Concierge care, what's that? So I'm sure you or at least I definitely have had plenty of frustrating experiences with the healthcare system, you know, due to impersonal relationships with my doctor or long wait times or like just general unresponsiveness. And so the basic idea is that you pay a price for more accessible and personalized care. Okay. Can we go into more detail on how this usually works? Do people use this instead of traditional insurance? You still need traditional insurance to cover hospitals, surgeries, specialists, anything like that. But there are two basic kinds of models that fall into this bucket, concierge care and direct primary care. In both, customers pay an annual or a monthly membership fee. In concierge care, it's much more about providing VIP services like home visits, uh, accompaniment to the hospital, or even a doctor's cell phone number. And these services usually bill traditional insurance. So you're just paying an extra fee on top of what you would normally be paying. Got it. And what's direct primary care? So direct primary care is a model that also aims to provide more personal and less bureaucratic care, but it's generally much more affordable and doesn't have the same focus on luxury. So direct primary care generally doesn't work with insurance, So it's a a contract directly between patients and physicians. And unlike concierge care, which can really provide any kind of service, direct primary care really just focuses on primary care. Okay. And what kind of fees are we talking about for these options? Well, for concierge care, there isn't really much of an upper bound. So some charge as much as $30,000 a month. 
But a study back in 2017 put the average number at $200 a month. For direct primary care, a review in 2015 found that the average cost was $93 a month. Got it. And what are physicians' motivations for joining or becoming practices like these? Yeah. So one of the biggest is just having more time to spend with individual patients because they have fewer of those patients. So remember that in the traditional fee-for-service model, physicians are generally incentivized to see as many patients as possible. And so these models can be very attractive. In the case of direct primary care, not having to deal with insurance is a huge benefit. If you remember our episode with the company Acasa about just how much overhead that requires. Okay. And what kind of effects do these models have on the healthcare system more broadly? Um, And how many people are currently members? A recent poll by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health found that one in five Americans in the top 1% pay an extra fee for direct access to their doctor. For low and middle income people, the rates are less than half that. So it's quite a few people and it's, you know, of course, very dependent on income. One of the most obvious potential effects is doctor shortages. There's already a shortage of primary care physicians. And if many switch to seeing even fewer patients, that, that shortage is going to be exacerbated even more for everyone else. Mm. So there are definitely some very serious concerns. I'm kind of curious, are Americans okay with these kind of models generally? Yeah, generally no. So from that same poll of the 80% of people who think that wealthier people can get better health care, the strong majority thinks that this is somewhat or very unfair. Interestingly, from this poll, the numbers aren't too different across income brackets. So 67% for households earning $500,000 or more a year think it's unfair. 73% for households earning $35,000 or less a year. And there are other concerns too. So you know, there, there are concerns that doctors have more freedom to cherry pick certain or perhaps healthier patients, and they can charge far more for older patients if they want. Remember from our episode with Dr. Sherry Rose that under the Affordable Care Act, insurance plans are restricted in how much your premium can increase based on age. Got it. So now to take us specifically back to Dr. Yashwanth and the VC context a bit, can you give an example of how that fits into the picture? Yeah. Uh, So a, a great example is One Medical. Dr. Yeshwant is an investor and and they're a pretty important force in this space. They had almost a quarter of a million members at the end of 2021, and they're in quite a few major American cities with 36 in the Bay Area alone. So One Medical is basically a concierge care provider for primary care like we were talking about before. It's $199 a year for a membership, so far less than the average. But visits and services are still charged to insurance, as they would normally be, with co-pays, et cetera. And an important aspect to circle us back to tech is its big emphasis on telehealth and tech-enabled processes to help drive efficiency. They're a popular employee benefit at many companies. Okay. Seeing how new technology relates to older business models is always pretty interesting. But I'll leave some of these questions for our conversation. Um, And who are they competing against? In addition to traditional primary care, there's 
urgent care centers, telehealth companies, uh, walk-in clinics at places like Target and CVS. And Amazon Care is certainly expected to be a major force as well. Well, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Yashwan, who can really help put a lot of this into context on what kind of issues the healthcare system currently is and isn't well suited to address and how different kinds of solutions and business models fit in. So Krishna, thanks for being on the show with us today. Nice to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your investment philosophy. So I hear you have this four square box that you draw for entrepreneurs to help them empathize with users. I'd love to start out asking about that. That came during this time when I was a business student. So I was originally a computer scientist, then you know I did my MD. And then the way that Harvard does it is in the middle of your MD, you do the first three years of your uh, medical school training. And then you go over to HBS for a year. And then the last year is kind of split between the two. And the way at least that it was done back then is, you know, you do your first two years, really kind of classroom sort of work, some clinical stuff. And your third year is all clinical. And my clinical year, I spend entirely at Mass General. And then after that, you go to business school. And there's all sorts of kind of traumatic things you see and experience when you're a med student, some of which are kind of things you see with patients, some of which are just pathologies you see organizationally and inside of just how people under strain kind of try to do these jobs. And um, I found business school to be a really amazing place to actually take a step back and process it. And so I was sitting in one of the classes and, you know, trying to understand like, why is it that all these other industries that we're learning about you know, seem to have kind of these uh, experiences where the customer is like pulling the product or the service from the company. In healthcare, we kind of have, it seems like there's so much more friction in the process. And of course, in business school, you know, if there's nothing that you learn at business school, you got to learn about the two by two, you know, so everything can get turned into a two by two. And, um, <laughs> And so, you know, kind of as I was thinking about that, I just kind of realized that one super simplistic way that you can kind of think about almost anything in the payer provider kind of healthcare delivery sort of world, actually the way that I usually talk about is like kind of social complexity on one end of the spectrum, and let's say on the x-axis, and then kind of medical complexity on the other. And social complexity, you know, are things like, um, can you afford your medications? Uh, do you have a support network around you? There's some complicated things like uh, mental health sorts of issues that are a little bit of both. But it's really kind of these social things people are calling like social determinants of health, but um, but it's kind of social context. And then on the medical side is like, do you have one medical condition, two medical conditions, really complex ones, sudden ones? Like, you know, what is it that you're dealing with? And and when you kind of put some examples forward, it's like you know anybody who works at Google, not everybody, but generally people at Google have pretty low social complexity. They have insurance. They generally have a solid and stable job. They have uh, usually a pretty active social network around them. They know the language, uh, they are active over electronic networks, they can search things. So very simple social situation. And then usually they only have one medical condition, maybe zero. And then, and then at the other end of the spectrum, I was doing my rotations kind of in these complex um, medical settings where you're talking to people who don't have jobs, you know, who often have uh, you know, substance abuse issues, uh, who don't have a lot of family support. They've often alienated a lot of people around them. Uh, maybe they don't have housing. Uh, and then on top of that, they have all of the classic medical conditions. They'll have diabetes, they'll have congestive heart failure, you know, and then now they have a stroke or something. And it's like, 
so, so those are very different people. They both have equal value, of course, but like they're having very different experiences in the world and the nature of their problems is quite different. And the way that you engage those people, you know, you would expect maybe it should be different. And yet what we do in the health system is we provide the same product to both people. We offer either a 15 minute visit or a 40 minute visit. And when you kind of start thinking about, well, where people are coming from, you realize like if we were designing a service for that person or for people who are similar to that person, we might design it totally differently than the way that the hospital system is currently designed. So for instance, you know, everybody talks about telemedicine and telemedicine is great. And it was great back then. And it's even more great now. And, you know, if you're sitting inside of Google or Apple or some of these companies, it's like, yeah, like telemedicine is amazing because I don't want to go to the doctor's office and I have this great computer and I have this video and I have a microphone. I have all these things that can make it really easy for me to see that care provider. And frankly, you know, I've got a lot of other stuff I want to do. I want to want to see my kids. I want to see my wife. I want to do my hobbies. I remember, uh, you know, when I was a resident, I had this patient who would show up in my office literally every time I had clinic and he would just, he'd show up, he wouldn't have an appointment and he'd just kind of hang out. And oftentimes he'd just pop in, see me for like three minutes, five minutes, and then he'd leave, hmm. uh, you know, and, um, and at some point I asked him like, why are you coming in so often? And, you know, he's uh, actually used to be a pharma exec. He, he had kind of a pretty put together life, but he became a really severe alcoholic, lost everything. And what he told me is like, I come here because there's people, there's people here and there's people who are nice to me here. And he's definitely one of the people who alienated almost everybody in his life. And, you know, people talk to him in this place. He can sit in the waiting room and know that nothing bad's going to happen <laughs> in that, in that moment. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, you kind of forget that, you know, that, that person, if you tried to turn it into a televisit, uh, it wouldn't be meeting the actual need that he has. And there's plenty of people who have complex issues, who have a hard time getting into the hospital, getting up the stairs, you know, parking and all that stuff. But it just goes to that point that actually there's a lot of different segments of patients that we're trying to treat, but the health system is very much organized around the hospital. It's organized around physicians. But when you start thinking of it in that way, you realize there's a myriad of opportunities to meet people where they are. And all of those quadrants are interesting. There's specific people you can think of. And when you start thinking of it like that, you realize, yeah, why, why would we put the hospital in this really inconvenient place? Why would we have it open in these hours and not these hours? Or when you're thinking about virtual, what are the things that can fit in these different quadrants? So I just found it a helpful lens to explain why so many things fall flat in healthcare. And when you start thinking of it that way, you realize there's a lot of places where there's nobody doing a business, or they may have an interesting business, but it's not positioned in the right way. And then you realize, oh, wait, this is all just basic marketing, right? That's what every other industry does. They say, you know, we don't try to sell the same car to everybody. We don't try to have everybody stay in the same hotel. We don't, it's, like, it's just because different people have different needs. And I think the thing that's really uncomfortable with all of that in the medical context is there is a real ethos, which I think is a phenomenal thing about medicine and medical culture, that we don't want to treat people differently. There's obviously a hugely problematic history of that happening in the medical field, over time. And so I think we've taken that and said, look, we're offering the same thing to everybody. There is something meaningful to that. But I do think that the counterpoint to it is it underperforms what patients often need, uh, is you're offering kind of the lowest common denominator to everybody. I really like that framework and the example you shared. As the only uh, non-MBA person in this conversation, I'd love to dive a little bit into this quadrant. So you have this quadrant of low social and medical needs and one or the other being high or both of them. Could you maybe share one exciting application in each of these four quadrants? Yeah, so like um, low social, low medical complexity, 
you know, I'd put out something like a one medical or nowadays like a hymns and hers or a row, like those work well for people who have access, you know, who have a phone and one medical, like I don't need to go into the office. I can send them a note, say I have an issue. And I'd say 85, 90% of things you can just deal with that way. It's entirely asynchronous and, and that works great. But if I took that patient who I was describing and said, yeah, just text that person and they'll take care of things. He'd never do it, right? Uh, you know, I gave him my email so many times uh, and, you know, he'd lose it. Or, you know, I think on the high social, high medical complexity realm, I'd say that clinic that I was in was actually pretty well suited. There's somebody there 24 seven. There's somebody always in the hospital. One of the things I remember is I had a patient who was absolutely in that high social, high medical complexity realm. We didn't speak the same language, uh, but, you know, I had a translator who could be right there. That translator knew that person because wherever she went when she came in, basically that translator who'd show up. And, you know, I remember that I needed her to see a vascular surgeon, you know, more or less that day. And where we were situated, I could just walk her over to the office and like, yeah, here, here's the vascular surgeon. And like, you're in a construct where you can kind of get everything that that patient needs, which is not the way that it might uh, look in other types of clinics. Um, so I think, you know, that sort of setting is pretty good in some circumstances. I think things like a Chen Med, Oak Street, uh, Caremore, uh, those sorts of things are maybe more organized around that high social, high medical complexity sort of patient. You know, I always remember going to Dana-Farber for a while. I sat on the board of Dana-Farber and we all rotated and took care of patients at that clinic. And it's just an amazing institution. They've discovered all sorts of new ways of treating cancer. And, you know, when I think of that low social, high medical complexity, I think of a place like Dana-Farber is just like so perfectly situated insofar as you go to Dana-Farber with maybe something that might still be an ambiguous, you know, presentation and it's a place that can hopefully precisely diagnose and treat you for what you have. And it's kind of designed around people who can actually engage in that. You need to come back for gamma knife. You need to come back for chemotherapy and you need to engage in these things kind of for this period of time. You might need a surgery and need to go through this sort of recovery. Again, there's a whole bunch of patients who wouldn't be able to do all of that. And yet we have this whole system that's kind of designed for it. I, I often say that, you know, people often go into medical school thinking that the person they're going to treat is the low social, high medical complexity person. Uh, it's mm. the person who kind of has, you know, this orthopedic issue. They broke their arm. They have a clavicular fracture. Like, okay, like I can diagnose your issue. I can cure you, but you need to engage in the recovery. You need to engage in some part of it. And that's the expectation that that's what's going to happen. But, but the reality when you actually get into medical school and residency and, and attendinghood is you realize that most of the people you're treating are actually in the high social, low medical complexity realm. The person who you're seeing in the emergency room who doesn't have a lot of medical conditions, but may have severe substance abuse and is showing up back in the emergency room over and over again. And we are really not situated in a hospital setting, in a traditional clinic setting to navigate things for that person. What that person usually needs is not Dana-Farber. What that person needs is a person who knows them cares about them and is able to see them in a lot of different environments to help provide some continuity. You know, this is not as relevant now as it was back then uh, because we have more medications for cystic fibrosis. But I remember at the Brigham, there was a woman, it was a nurse who uh, was part of the hematology department. She used to see all of the patients who had sickle cell disease. She was not one of the hematologists, but she was one of the nurses. And anytime a person with sickle cell disease would come in, uh, she would see them. Now, on the one hand, sickle cell disease is a complex disease, but actually it's just one disease. And usually it presents with all sorts of complex issues that usually involve a lot of pain. Uh, and patients often end up getting placed on a lot of opioids. 
And you'll be in the situation where somebody gets ramped up on huge doses of opioids, and then they get taken totally off once the emergency clears for them. But then those patients can often get addicted to those opioids. And so then you end up actually with a chronic issue. This is a person who's now might be pretty young and is now addicted to opioids. Not their fault, right? They didn't go off and try and like take these drugs. We put them on them because we couldn't cure their disease. And so, you know, what, what, what the Brigham did is they had this one woman who basically knew every sickle cell patient. And so anytime somebody would come in, she would know what their dose was supposed to be and what it should look like as they're going off. And it was really counterintuitive to most physicians as to how high the dose would need to be and how quickly you'd need to taper them off. But because she knew them in all these different settings, you know, she was able to navigate their care in, I think, a much more effective way than even a primary care doc who might be tracking things, but may not be able to be in the emergency room room right that moment. So we we don't have a lot of examples of companies and efforts in that space. I think we see more now. There's companies that are working in social determinants of health, and you do see companies that are trying to do uh, work around uh, substance abuse, mental health. That's been a huge change over the last 10 years is kind of the degree to which there's been that shift. So I'm much more encouraged about opportunities in that space now than I was back then. But those are some examples in each of those quadrants. And Uh, You can kind of see how those are all actually slightly different from one another and how if you try and use one, which we've done, you use this hammer to try and get that nail in and it doesn't always work. But I think we're in a world where we see uh, many more tools, many more services approaching all these in in different ways. I don't want to overly tie you to this two by two, but just in general, as when you're thinking about investments that you want to make, are there certain parts of this two by two or certain quadrants that you think tend to have a better ROI or tougher barriers to entry? Like, how do you think about sort of like the pros and cons from an investing standpoint of going after the market in one of these four quadrants? So I actually think it's one of the amazing things about healthcare when one's looking at it as an entrepreneur or investor is that almost anything in healthcare is huge. Even, even rare diseases are huge markets, you know, if you look at it in that way. So I don't know that it matters, you know, kind of which quadrant one's interested in. You know, I think the thing that's important is that you have a sense of the, the patients who you're trying to help and whether your solution is actually really targeted to them. Things that could be really impactful sometimes look like they're not because they're kind of peanut buttered across all of them, right? So if you're peanut buttering across all of them and it's really a service that's targeted and really works for one quadrant, you might only see a quarter or maybe less of the people coming in kind of actually activating and engaging with your service. But if you really narrowed it in, and said, okay, we're actually focusing on this group could look tremendously successful. So I think the key thing is just basically just market positioning, your market positioning against the right segment that speaks volumes around lots of things. What's your go-to-market? How do you advertise? How do you think about the quality assessment of that service? How do you even assess that? All of those things kind of are modulated by where one fits. But from an investment perspective, you can have phenomenal opportunities, phenomenal returns in any of these areas. And it's, it, it is an amazing thing about healthcare that we often forget that, you know, you could say your segment is going to be purely people with this subvariant of lung cancer, you know, and that there's billions of dollars flowing through just that sub portion of the market, uh, which yeah. is kind of astonishing, but that's the way it works. And now you'd have to get huge penetration and get every one of those patients and, and you'd have to get your lifetime value, customer acquisition costs, right. For that to be sufficiently interesting, you know, and I, it's interesting. Like I, I've seen some companies that are super focused like that, you know, but one of the interesting intersections that I'm finding ever more kind of engaging now uh, or productive is kind of that intersection between the, the metrics and the way that digital companies in the enterprise software, consumer tech world, the way they look at things and the way that 
you know, maybe those things can be intersected with how some of these areas in healthcare can be assessed because these are incredibly efficient business models that have been created on the digital side. And I think over the last five, six years, we've seen a lot more sophistication on the health tech side as people have adopted and recognized that this is how you assess a business. And these are tools and frameworks and business models that you can use on the healthcare side. There's plenty of times where people look at a product or a service they can bring to healthcare, see and feel that it's really meaningful to a patient uh, or to a physician, and then find themselves befuddled as to why it's not a valuable company. And I think there's a lot of lessons to derive from the digital side of things where you can actually efficiently create large businesses, even inside relatively narrow niches, as long as the, the addressable market's big enough, which as we were saying, healthcare has many large addressable markets, even inside of niches, but you have to have all those other pieces right also. You know, you have to have your business model and your economic uh, value creation model. All of that has to be thought through and it's not sufficient actually just for it to be useful to patients and, and clinicians. You've mentioned uh, that you strongly believe in the, in the need for more tech solutions in healthcare. And I can't help but wonder from the example that you shared earlier of the patient that came and visited you every day and needed that environment, what role does tech have to play there? Do you feel like there is a opportunity for solutions here that are approaching this from a tech angle, or do you feel like there is something else that needs to happen first? I don't want to be interpreted or kind of painted as, you know, technology cures all things. I actually always think of technology, you know, as a tool, it's a tool. And just because you have a hammer doesn't mean everything's a nail. You know, when I think of that patient, for instance, there are some things that technology might make more efficient, right? Like I can call him on his phone, but the core of it is really human connection for him. And the solution that we came up with him really was that, oh yeah, he's showing, he's telling us what he needs. He's showing up here every day. This is a person who needs human connection and he needs things to occupy him so that he doesn't kind of go off into these other behaviors. And you know, technology can help with that, but it's not going to be the solution. I'd, I'd say it's a huge mistake to think that tech can kind of cure all things or really even fix healthcare. For that person, you know, we did get him to a much better spot over the years. You know, the, the solution, at least one of the solutions was really just kind of proactively saying, yeah, rather than you showing up every day, like, let's just schedule this. Let's set you up with, you know, in a community, which was non-trivial, but getting him to a place where he could be surrounded by people. And then ultimately, yeah, I mean, we, we were able to navigate a lot of things, you know, virtually, and then he didn't need to come into the office quite as often. So yeah, technology can play a role there. But in the end, I think you want the humanity and these, these sorts of dynamics to lead the way, which again, I think we often lose track of in these large systems. It sounds like what excites you, at least right now, is, is a lot of the sort of high social complexity issues. And I'm curious about sort of how you think about investments that you make in that space and still keeping the cost structure viable for a young company. Like I, I know that a market may be big enough, but if you're focusing on certain areas of the market where their ability to pay is just going to be less than maybe another part of the market, how do you think about that as an investor? And how do you come to terms with that? Because I agree with you that it's an important space to be in. You know, what's really interesting is um, just how the whole market has kind of inverted over the last, I guess, 14 years, you know, <laughs> it's just like, it's really kind of come along with the value-based care movement. And uh, when you can have a patient who is in a capitated payment plan of some sort, where the capitation amount is attached to the degree of risk that people can agree on for that patient, 
uh, it changes all the incentives. And, you know, that's changed everything. I'd have to say I'm not totally convinced that value-based care solves everything at all. But one thing it has done, and, and there's lots of ways to hack this, which plenty of people do, but it has kind of inverted a lot of those incentives in the system. So, you know, how do you take care of those people who are vulnerable and have multiple risk factors, multiple social risk factors? You know, well, we have these programs now that allow us to have more flexibility with how we use the dollars for, you know, for dual eligible patients. We have, you know, ways of assigning high risk patients, higher reimbursement rates effectively. And we have ways to kind of move some of that risk to the provider so that one can take kind of a longer term perspective on that person. And I think, I think all of that, then when you kind of take a step back and look at what that impact has been on the broad space of payer provider investing and entrepreneurship, it's led to this explosion of companies that are looking to have an impact in areas like mental health, you know, and substance abuse and food access and homelessness. And like, you know, I, I about fell off my chair when I started to see that start to happen. You know, I remember um, I went to uh, Health Evolution Summit years and years ago, and I remember seeing the CEO of one of the big payers say that in his top three, you know, mental health was like number two or number three, you know, kind of at that time. I bet it'd be number one at this point, other than COVID. And I thought that was astonishing because you kind of look at it and it's like, well, look, like if you don't navigate the mental health issue that this person has, you know, all the physical health stuff is going to be hard to get right as well. If a person's depressed and they're not able to activate themselves to get out the door, then how are they going to remember to take their medications, engage in exercise and do all the other stuff that we want them to do that they should be doing for themselves? Just a reminder how powerful those incentives are that, you know, those capitated models, you have to get those right to uh, unlock the rest of the value. You know, it's still not the case that we've solved any of these issues, you know, in the country. And, and I can't tell whether that's a function of value-based care frameworks not being fully pervasive across the country or it may well be that most of these areas that people need help with are as much uh, public health issues as they are medical issues. Uh, and what we really need is systematic shifts in how we deal with these things, how we deal with food access and housing. Is it appropriate for the onus of finding help with food and, and housing to be put onto the medical system, primary care and to payers? Like that seems like, a, you know, if you're constructing a society, that seems like a weird place to try and solve those issues. It seems like more of a public health or more of a a broad social issue. And that, that speaks to kind of the underlying fraying of our public institutions and whether they're able to do the things the population needs. But yeah, I think I think it's been incredible, actually, how some of these areas have grown and, and I think have underwritten to real venture skill opportunities. You know, we're still in version one of most of these. And all of those, as they went out, you know, the first thing most of those companies ran into as they started interacting with payers is realizing the payers have no idea how to assess the return on investment from these efforts. There's a reasonable amount of complexity in that. I still don't think that's totally solved. So, you know, each payer kind of has a different way of assessing the nature of the economic investment that they're making into this uh, intervention. That's probably one of the big things to be figured out in the field. As we figure out how we measure this sort of impact over time, hopefully um, that will make for a more standardized way for people to actually try to impact and optimize uh, those sorts of outcomes. I really like your description of the challenge and the opportunities there. You've made several investments over the last 10 years, Editas Medicine, Flatiron, One Medical. I'd love to hear about some of the more ambitious investments you're making today and love if you could share a few examples of companies and directions you're particularly excited by. Probably I've drunk all the Kool-Aid out there on the, um, on the gene editing 
if you could go back to the world of computation and think about some of these critical moments, kind of the development of you know mainframes, the development of the personal computer, the development of the internet and World Wide Web and cell phone, like I put myself in the camp of, I think we're kind of in one of those moments in gene editing where you kind of look around, especially around Cambridge and you know San Francisco, but certainly happening all over just the number of amazing things that we're seeing happening like right now feel it feels like one of those moments you can know? you share an example of what yeah, yeah, you're so, particularly excited by there yeah so i mean i think the example of crispr being kind of um find and replace the way the way people have said it is like you know crispr might be um, you know like a pair of scissors you can cut uh, the genome and hopefully kind of fit some new things in there uh, or edit some things totally out but there's some problems with that framework and that you may have uh, splicing that that you're not hoping for, or you might uh, allow for other issue off-target effects and whatnot. Uh, then you have something like base editing, which people kind of analogize to like an eraser and a pencil. You can change just one letter to another one. You don't have to break the DNA, and that would be Beam that's been developing that technology, and uh, and that's incredibly elegant. Uh, you know, and then you have something like Prime editing, uh, which might be more like a word processor and can edit large swaths of the genome again without requiring a break. It's kind of incredible, um, actually, when you when you kind of look at what's possible there. The issue, of course, now being delivery. How do we get these ed- editing mechanisms to the right place uh, in the body? You know, we were investors in a company called Guide, which was acquired by Beam, working on opening up the array of compartments that we can get these sorts of editors into. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more innovation on that realm. Uh, and of course, some of the work we're seeing from companies like Verve. Verve was essentially crazy when we started talking about it, incubated several years ago at, at GV with, with a couple of our team members. And the, the thought there was, uh, you know, we have drugs that treat PCSK9 or PCSK9 inhibitors as antibodies. Uh, you know, why can't we create an, a version to edit this mutation out from the genome, given that it doesn't seem to have any effect other than to increase cardiac risk. And if you look at the data that they published, it's got to be among the most incredible data that I've ever seen. I think, I think these things are very exciting. And of course, in, you know, Intellia has some incredible data out and like, I, I think we're seeing it start to enter clinical use, or at least we're starting to see it enter the space where we're anticipating it having clinical use. There's, there's, I think there's a lot of promise there. And what I find really compelling there is, you know, we're talking about generally speaking cures uh, for those diseases, simple kind of genetic diseases than some of the complex ones we were talking about earlier. But to me, it's stepping stones. Uh, but I could go on if you, if you have time. I'm happy to talk about other kind of uh, out there ideas uh, that we have and that we've been working on. And uh, I think there's a bunch of amazing things. I love these excitements going on. I have to ask, because we are the AI Health Podcast, whether you see opportunities here for AI to have a role or whether that's not going to be the most effective application of AI to address the bottlenecks that we're seeing with the translation of these technologies. It's so part of it that I hardly even call it out anymore. Like, yeah, do you need email to like run a business or do you need a computer? (laughs) Yes. Like, yeah, that's just like so presumed as like part of the architecture that yeah, AI, machine learning, these are like just not entirely off the shelf, but in some cases they're pretty close to, you can use these models that have been trained to, in many cases, quickly get to very high performant uh, systems, even in, in unexpected domains. Every one of the examples I was just walking through, you'll find statisticians and machine learners that are embedded in those companies and would not be the same companies without those people. It's not, will we see it? Is it coming? It's like, no, no, it's already here. That's table stakes. Almost to the point where it's ubiquitous 
And if you're not, you know, incorporating these methods into your work, you're, you're probably not even on the map at this point. Krishna, you have an MBA, you have an MD, you have a BS in computer science. There are so many ways that you personally could give back to the healthcare industry. Could you maybe tell us why you chose to contribute as an investor and what you think your role is there? It's a really great question. I did my residency at Brigham and Women's uh, in the internal medicine department. And, you know, the people who I trained with there, you know, when I think of who's my tribe, like that's, those are the people who I think of as my peers, as my, as the people who I stand up, what I'm doing next to what they're doing, you know, and what they're doing is, it's kind of like what they're doing is really incredible, right? It's people like Dave Chakshi, you know, who has been commissioner of New York city during COVID and, uh, you know, Sachin being CEO of uh, scan and, and other health plans and, I think there's ways of looking at venture and investing that are self-aggrandizing and, uh, you know, about wealth creation. That is not how I look at this. And, and the second I find myself looking at it like that, the whole thing kind of, I think, collapses. It's kind of like my alternative would have been to hopefully have been some kind of researcher. Uh, so after I was a computer scientist, I, I came and worked at Brigham and Women's and uh, MGH Children's and MIT and kind of image-guided surgery. And I worked with a bunch of surgeons at Mass General, and they were very kind to, to let me embed with them for a while. I very much look at them as like, you know, kind of having the ideal jobs where it's like they're doing the classic academic medicine thing, right? They teach, they treat patients and they do research and all those things feed into each other. And, you know, if I wasn't doing this, I think that would be the trajectory that I was trying to set myself on in, in going through all of this. And I, I guess I do kind of look at venture a little bit in that same mold, right? Our job is to try and bring something new to the world. It's to bring the financing and the people together, hopefully enable some of these sorts of breakthroughs you know, and then to hopefully see them translated into actually having an impact on people. And, you know, I feel profoundly lucky to be part of an entity that's given us this amount of resource and to be able to attract these sorts of people uh, to do this. But you look at the people who are at Google Ventures and why they're here, every single one of them are here because they want to have an impact on those people, on those patients. Many of us have treated those patients and realized how far shy we are as a system in doing that and helping people. We've been frustrated in our own clinical practices because we don't have the tools. This is a place where hopefully we can do that. I always think of the analogy, and again, I should, I should be better in referencing these things, but you know, if you think of medicine, it's like there's people who keep falling into this river and you're kind of a physician, you help pull them out. And you're pulling them out one by one, but you may not have the bandwidth, you know, to kind of go upstream and try and figure out why people are falling in to begin with. You know, I think it's just different ways of doing that, right? Academic medicine is one great way to do it. Entrepreneurship is a phenomenal way to do it. Working in a hospital system and innovating on how the care can be delivered, working at the policy level is another great way to do it. Venture is just another vehicle, another way to do it. And I think it's been a really flexible and scalable vehicle, but it's certainly not the only way to do it. And it's actually quite limited in the nature of the sorts of problems that it can solve. You know, venture is profoundly good at bringing very talented people together to ask very focused questions, usually of a technical nature, that once they're solved, will hopefully change the world in some way and thereby create a lot of value that will help people recycle and hopefully do more of that. There's a lot of questions that it's not very good at answering or kind of going after. There's some things this tool is really good at. This hammer is really excellent. You know, but the nature of the problems is more complex than what this hammer is really designed to engage with. But frankly, some of those problems are more complex than the way that the policy world is set up to do, or the way that the hospital system or insurance industry is set up to do. None of these tools is really set up to solve the complex problems that we have. Okay, we have a problem then. <laughs> so what are we going to do? And I think there's a huge amount of innovation 
to explore there. I'm incredibly interested in that uh, right now because I think those, that's not just how do I be a better venture capitalist. It's a question of how do we blend some of these different areas of expertise, uh, and and what that probably means is a lot more collaboration amongst people who probably don't really know each other uh, yet. And and I always find that interesting. That's where I'm probably going to be spending the next decade in my career. Well, we're excited to follow you in that next decade. And Krishna, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. We appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Yeshwan for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your host, Pranav and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee and Mark Robbins. Music by Ethan Aichi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know, subscribe to the show, and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.